Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series. What follows is a recording between myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talks here at the Abbey, and King Lear himself, Mr. Owen Rowe. I will warn you, dear listener, that what you're about to hear contains strong laughter and multiple funny moments. Adjust your volume accordingly. It's just par for the course when you're in Mr. Rowe's company, you will laugh. So we begin as we mean to go on, laughing. And away we go. <laughs> oh, and as you know, the talk series here at the Abbey uh, frequently relates to the show on stage. And in this case, I'm tangentially linking you in with Death of a Comedian by Owen McCafferty. That's playing downstairs on the Peacock stage. Yes. And not many people know this, but you never, ever wanted to be a stand up comic. But no. funnily enough, you were one. That's so right. uh, talk me through that one. Well, the, the thing is that at the, at the time, it was a different time in, in Ireland in terms of training as well. There was like, I went to the Brendan Smith Academy, which was really the main school in Dublin. After that, there was the Oscar School. And then out of that, we formed a fringe company called Reckless Theatre Company. And we did various things. But when I wasn't acting, um, like, uh, I would go to the late night comedy store in the uh, project and I'd try my hand at stand-up. And I was terrible to begin with. And uh, there's video of me standing up and literally toilet rolls being thrown at me and stuff like that. But it was fine. I mean, I knew this. I was a big fan of Lenny Bruce. I was a big fan of Steve Martin as a stand-up. I had a lot of... I was a big fan of musical. So I've always wanted to try it out. Um, And I kept going, kept going. And it got gradually better. And I I found my niche. I used to go with, with stuff scripted. And it was, a t- it was too stilted. And then I just went out with a handful of ideas and played with the audience. And that's when I enjoyed myself. That's when it worked. And um, so I did that for on and off for about three years. And as I said, I didn't want to be a comedian, but I was keen to know what it felt like. And in a way, it has informed everything else I've done, including like serious theatre, in the sense that you know when you're losing your audience. It's like a, we're getting all Jedi on you. You have this, <laughs> have this kind of instinct that's yeah. honed. And so you know when the audience are drifting and you know that, oh, okay, I'm going to breath to get them back somehow and you just, whatever, you just have even that with awareness. This, even with the more serious material? Yes, completely. Even with the, yeah. I mean, when I did Faith Healer, I did Faith Healer at the gate and I asked them to put the house lights up. And I was fine with that. The audience were a bit freaked out to be given. They thought there was a mistake made. But I did it because I wanted to talk to them and uh, I couldn't have done that without uh, having that experience of, of, of stand-up. Um, and it was it was fine. They you know they kind of realised it was part of the show. And then, for me, it brought Faith Healer alive because this man was someone who stood in front of people mm-hmm. and connected with them, as opposed to that me standing up on stage, um, orating these wonderful words, uh, and um, letting letting the audience feel oh look keep that man must be in a hall. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say no, you are you are actually in the hall with yeah. me. You know. So, uh, but I, I kind of, I love talking to an audience. Uh, it makes the audience work harder though, because I, I yeah. even know, say, doing the talk series, that the audience aren't aware of their facial expressions. They're just there to sit back and enjoy. And But, mm. and, but you're feeding, and once you can see those expressions, though, that yeah. must change the, the direction of, of you know. Cause well, it's very, it makes it very vibrant for you. I mean, you do get excited by it. I mean, it's always terrified going on every night yeah. doing Faith Healer, you would be. But, um, um, but I just really enjoyed myself doing it. I enjoyed, yes, you were looking at faces and, you know, the audience felt more uncomfortable, as yeah. I said, if you, if you connected with them, if you're looking at someone and 
Um, but thankfully, when my glasses are off, I can't see a bloody thing as well. No, so, is that how you perform yeah. with, without so, yeah. nothing really? <laughs> so, I, but it doesn't. It doesn't. I didn't feel that freaked out. But I did was aware of people's expressions, but it wasn't so honed and so refined that I was picking up on any side of side nuance that would throw me or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, it was. Uh, yeah. But I, I was. Uh, I could not have done that had I not done some stand up uh, three years of it. And you would have done the stand-up in, was that your early 20s or early 30s? Early, or? Twi- early 20s. And yeah. that was in between your training at the Brennan Smith Academy? Yeah, and um, and my fringe days, or my fringe company days. Um, so we, f- we formed a fringe company called Reckless, and then we did a couple of shows with a woman called Miriam Amara. From um, DIT Rathmines, the voice director. Yeah, yeah, yes, she was amazing. She, yeah. You know, we, we all connected well with her. Reckless died. As a company, and then we I carried on doing the stand up, and then I got involved with Wet Paint Theatre Company, um, which was you know, people like Dermot Bulger right for the Ben Farrath Cleary, yes, that yeah, de- debuted with, with them. But I mean, I, what happened was, I mean, I was, it was a pressure to write material every time you went on, and I didn't want to do it as a profession, I just wanted to be a performer. I always felt uncomfortable actually calling myself an actor, I felt much easier. Uh, to call myself a performer. And when you when thing. you performed as a stand-up comic, did you um, have a persona? Because I came across some um, uh, pseudonym, I suppose. What, what was a Ray? A Ronald Ray gun. Ronald, yeah, yeah. Well, I had a Ray gun. It was, I, I was. It was very, very, very tenuous. The whole thing. But that was a bit more like that. Wasn't more like Reeves and Mortimer. Okay. Around that time, uh, as well in Dublin, where Ronald Reagan was was. Uh, right, yeah. My niece had a Ray gun that made a funny noise, and I borrowed it. That was okay, okay. And then I, I just went, but there, there, there was a scene where there was a thing where at the time there were a lot of Russian dissidents defected to the West, and also uh, Donna Kebabs came into Dublin for the first time. So I had them, <laughs> that sounds a bit sick, by Russian dissidents coming in as Donna Kebabs to get into the West, and I was interviewing a Donna Kebab basically. That was the that was my routine. It was high art. Um, it was well, I, I thought it was, it was ended up on an album we did called Laughing Matter. Right. But I had lines like you know this Donna Kebab was once a very fine dancer, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I remember the Bolshe Russian ballet company and a pillar of strength was Mamushka, right? That was the kind of thing I was saying. So and then I I, I sat the I put the this Donna Kebab on a chair and said Ivan you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I proceeded to interview the Donna Kebab. So that was the... That's the was, yeah, well, there that's you go. That was, so that's where I was at. Um, so because I, there was an awful pressure at the time to be political as well. And I didn't want to be... I just get a pain in my neck with the, the, the phrase to alternative, you know, mm. alternative comedy. Um, and what, I thought, what that meant was like something like Ben Elton. Everybody had to be like given out about you know, the politicians, which is valid and fine. But the pressure was... Sometimes it just wasn't funny, mm. you know. I mean, Lenny Bruce used to come out and make these points, and they were like, they, but they sometimes they he, he wasn't funny, yeah. but you got the point. But I wasn't like that. I just wanted to be funny if I wanted, or, or, or just engage or entertain the audience. Um, but um, no, so that was that kind of stuff. That that particular one, that that particular sketch was a slight departure for me, but it was uh, it made it onto an album called Laughing Matter on vinyl somewhere. Oh right, it exists. So check your Bernardo's shops for that one. So you you discarded the script and then mm. you went you improvised then. So you went out as yourself and, yeah. and engaged kind of, the yeah. audience and fed off. But I was kind of pulling. I was kind of like more influenced by Steve Martin's stand up at the time, which was and I actually ripped off some of this in the very early days. I ripped off some of the stuff just then did and tried it. Yeah, and then people I, I thought people had never heard of him and, and of course then people were coming up but yeah I heard that in the album so I dropped that and I started trying to do it well I took that kind of uh, 
slack-jawed, um, slightly uh, surreal approach to stuff. And, and the, 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 I'd use that as an influence. And you go out with a persona, all right, um, not necessarily a character, but you go with a persona. Uh, whereas, say, the Ronald Reagan was a kind of a character thing that I did just off, just off the wall. But you go out and you'd... Some nights I'd say, okay, let's, and I'd, I'd divide the audience up and we'd do New York, New York, the song. And we split the women and the men, and now the men and the women. And then in between things would happen. And it was, it was just very simple stuff. You know? It was very brave as well as a performer to go out there and you're at the will of the audience. Yeah. Do you know? Well, that's, and, you're, well, and your wits. Uh, well, yeah, and it, but that's for, you know, you, you didn't drink. I didn't, I mean, I, you didn't drink, but like some, some comedians do and, you know, can't do it. Like, I couldn't see. So you had to be quite sharp. And it was good. And, and you'd be wondering, well, sometimes you're wandering on stage at one in the morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the rest of the audience would be out of it, you know. But anyway, uh, it was just good. I mean, see, I don't have, I had the arrogance and the, the, the sense of taking a risk. I mean, now I don't have that arrogance. I could never do it now. And, and It's the arrogance of youth, isn't it? It, it is, isn't it, yeah. And I, I may not take a risk, but I'll take a challenge. You know, there's a difference. I, I guess, I don't know. A challenge is a risk with preparation. Is that making any sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it is. It's so I don't think I'd because you you felt you had nothing to lose and you'd everything to gain in some respects at that age. You could afford yeah. to make mistakes yeah. then as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it was it was some you know and if you had a terrible night you didn't sleep, but if you had a great night you certainly didn't sleep because you just thought you were high on the laughs and yeah. stuff like that you know. But but as I said, uh, what happened was. Um, the arrogance, I, 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 the pressure of writing new material was something I couldn't, I just got tired of. But also, I kind of put, one night uh, I was at, I got a phone call from someone who had organised this 24-hour event in Belfield. <laughs> I remember that the name of it was called a 24-hour multimedia karma get-together. Right, that's, that's what it was called. It was the 80s. Okay. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, 24-hour multimedia, yeah, that was it. And I had a spot. Now, what do I do? Is when you arrive up and uh, there's a there's a kind of a roster on the wall. You find out where your spot is. You're on at half eight, and uh, then and then I said, okay, I'll go out there for a modest fee. And I went out and I was on after a theatre company. So the theatre companies had music events. It was all like continuous, yeah. and they had me slotted in to follow a mass for the dead. And I thought this was kind of the theatre company were doing a mass for the dead. I thought it was a play, but no, it was an actual mass for the dead. It was there was a uh, a guy in a coffin. <laughs> there was, no. con was a con there was a congregation, and a guy dressed up as a priest, and they actually performed the full mass for the dead. And I had to follow this, and it didn't. Needless to say, um, I should have been put in the coffin alongside the, the other guy. But I just thought, no, I said, I'm not doing this anymore because you used to get crazy gigs like that, and I just thought, no, I actually, I, it's kind of run its course for me. Yeah. And I've, I've got a lot out of it, and now I'll just say, no, I'll, I'll pack it in, and. Uh, <laughs> and try, try and focus on the theatre more so than proper acting jobs. And where, and but where did that funny? Where did your funny bones come from? Was that were you, as a as a child? Were you were you told you were funny, or did you have that urge um, to perform? Well, I don't know. I mean, I was a huge fan of, of comedians like Norman Wisdom, Jerry Lewis, because uh, I used to go to the movies every day, um, except Saturday. Um, my mother would take me to the movies. We lived in Cannon Street, so I had the, the Deluxe, the Green and the Grafton, and I changed the bill every Thursday. So you go to the, the Deluxe on, on Monday, you go to the Green on Tuesday, Wednesday you go to the Grafton, and then by Thursday they've changed the bill again. But it was usually like you'd see Norman Wisdom movies, and he'd like the, a clatter of films on. Like he, yeah. he wouldn't just go for one, there'd be about three or four in, 
cartoons thrown in all and, and shorts as you know short movies and like it was a big deal and you, you know but, I, but the thing is my mother would collect me from school <laughs> straight to the cinema and uh, you know I used to I'd say watch these 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 uh, American comedies uh, or I'd have to sit through some Rock Hudson movie my mother liked which was that was worse. Um, but anyway, um, did you find yourself mimicking like those, like you know, normal wisdom kind of uh, pratfalls, or, or you know, was it something that you found yourself? Yeah, I did. I found repeating. Them, yeah, I, I didn't. I, no, I didn't. I, I, I think I probably did that later with a few drinks on me. <laughs> but uh, no, I did find them. They, they were, they were, they just gave me a great lift to watch these guys. And, and uh, I mean, I watched Jerry Lewis movies recently, and I have to say, I, I don't feel. I think you know he had a lot going from, but so I, they just don't grab me as the way they, they used to. Don't stand up anymore. Yeah. But these were like when you look at Norman Wisdom or Jerry Lewis, they were like big, big, big children, you know. And I think I, I that's why they have such a uh, they had such a great young following. Um, but then later on, I started getting into albums. Listen, I listened to more comedy albums than I would rock albums. As I get, okay. I worked in a record shop in Camden Street, and I used to get all these. I used to order these things for myself, basically. Uh, I used to listen to, I say, um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, Tony Hancock, uh, and even going further back to someone like Billy Bennett, who was a music hall artist who do uh, monologues, and his uh, his sort of slogan for him was uh, Billy Bennett, almost a gentleman, and he dressed in this tight fitting tuxedo, you know, and they were kind of, uh, but his monologues were hilarious, and uh, I mean, uh, um, I, I think in another t- another time I might have been one of these end of the pier guys. Okay. I think so. Okay. I just love the, uh, the, the, the just connecting with an audience and taking them on a journey, whether it's through the story of a play like Lear or just standing like, you know, going in and messing about with, the, with them and having a laugh, you know, whatever. So when you were, I suppose, listening and I suppose absorbing all, all these comedy routines and monologues, did you ever set about writing your own monologue for an audition or what was your first audition? Oh God, that's a really good, I don't know. Um, Oh, I, yeah, well, yeah, I do. I do remember auditioning for here, uh, going way back, and one for the gate, and I used the warehouse speech from uh, um, Tennessee Williams' uh, Glass Menagerie, okay. and I think, as indeed I think every other actor uh, <laughs> did. It was one of those pieces that you did in school, in sort of acting school. But um, uh, what was your audition for acting school? Did you have to have one, or, or was? Well, you see, um, no, we, we just had a selection of pieces. But what happened was. I, when we formed the Fringe Company, uh, Wet Paint, we did The Lament for Arthur Cleary. And I was 25 then. And it was just, that was the play. Sometimes people get, they gotta get a part and from then on, they get some sort of record. And for Arthur Cleary, I can honestly say I've been rarely out of work more than six months. Uh, I've always been working. I got, that Arthur Cleary for me uh, was, 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 um, started me off really that's that's Dermot Bulger isn't it mm, yeah but I'm interested in, in, in I suppose what was the spark that that got you into the Brennan Smith Academy oh right in, in to do the fringe in to do the you know so was because I, I I think I think it was because now your family you don't you don't come from a theatrical no, background my, my father was a truck driver my mother worked for B- Jacob's Biscuit Factory when he couldn't get and I was an only child so, which may have something to do with it okay as well uh, the fact that I was, you know, I had a lot of time to myself listening to these albums, listening to the goons, um, uh, you know, I just, um, uh, but also it wasn't just that I was seeing the actors, I guess, in movies every day. You'd, you'd be, you know, looking over this amazing vista 
on some movie and then you come out into miserable Camel Street it's raining down on a wet Thursday <laughs> Did you see yourself in that visit? Did, like what, what made you fearless enough to say, I could, I could try that, I think I'd be, I could do that? Um, I don't know, I, I think I just felt I had to do it. Um, it was, I think it was Ray McNally, uh, rest his soul, said I don't want to be an actor, I have to be. And I think that's part of it. It's like it's, it's a, one of those questions you can't really answer other than I just want, want to do that. I just wanted to do that, you know. And, uh, and there is nothing like it to, to stand up and, and to have... Be, I mean, to, before you go on, it's torturous. And you're saying, what in God's name am I doing? this job do you like, suffer do you yeah. suffer but yeah not in the night not in a way that's you know you don't bring people down with you or you don't throw up or, or you know that it's it's just like what am i doing i've got another three hours to get through and i've got you know i don't know what's and then you're on and then it's it's over you know you just it's it's just it flies by i'm doing the 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 crucible here and i i thought this is a monster and i was thinking for the first week i was thinking about the whole play and i said don't don't just take it a piece at a time and then suddenly it was over and so it was just like, just follow the story, follow the journey, and it, it's not that bad. It's before you go on, mm. is really, really the nightmare. And, and David, again, dropping names here, but David Kelly, I worked with, um, um, Lord Esme, he, he used to say, like, really, when you open your eyes in the morning, you're on. When you're doing a set, you know, with the panel, you know, something like, if it's a big show. Mm. And he's right, you know. Uh, if there's a piece of music in a play, I'll go to bed with that rolling through my head, I'll wake up that piece of music in my head if it's if it's part of the show and it's and then as soon as the show's over that goes away what do you and like to live with when a show is on then oh an absolute nightmare you, you, i'm sure it sounds <laughs> like you're consumed by it i'd say how, well, it yeah. depends when i was doing lear was um i was you know i was conscious of what that meant and i was conscious that my, my wife michelle forbes now she's she was writing at the time writing her first novel and uh, so she didn't need me going around. Now, at the same time, during rehearsals, my mother died, and, uh, and the, the play was the play that it was, mm. and it was, so it was a whole mix, but that was a particularly bad one. But also, there was a play called Copenhagen, I found very difficult, where I was playing Niels Bohr, so you we were talking about quantum physics and history and geography at the same time, and uh, trying to act. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was one that I just could not get my head around. I eventually did, but the, so you just have to immerse yourself in quantum yeah, physics yeah. so that you can. Funny enough, convey. even that, yeah. yeah, and try and understand what you and you vaguely know what you're talking about some of the time, and uh, you got it. And then the thing with that play Copenhagen, people used to say, "I really got it. That's fantastic. I got it." And then a the day later, they, they didn't quite know what the hell was going on. They, they, you, know, you feel as it was yeah. gone, as the play was on. You followed it, but uh, no. There are certain plays that will do your head in. Then there's this like certain plays where you just it, it, once it comes easy, but uh, it's not. It doesn't demand that you um, break your neck uh, on stage or, or you know do too much shouting. Yeah. <laughs> but was, but if you can, uh, certain plays, mostly you know if you've got a, if you're playing large parts, it does consume you. You know, and you try not to be a pain in the neck. We'll we'll, yeah. we'll come back to Lear because. We need to talk about Lear. Okay. Um, well, when you're saying that you take the play piece by piece, scene by scene, you know, mm. what does that say to you, say, as a person? Is that, are you a person that's very, you know, it's all about mindfulness now? So do you very much live in this moment uh, because, you know, don't scare yourself with the bigger picture? Or, like, how does, how does being an actor inform your life? Um, how does it inform my life? Well, it's, it's given me a, a, a great insight into certain 
situations and people and uh, like something like Faith Healer uh, it did made me think a very different way about you know what it is to be um, what to be to be to be ma a male for, for one thing because of what and the influence and a selfish male or an actor indeed as it's like. Um, and how you uh, how you affect other people, something like stuff like that. It can give you an edu education, uh, 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 whether it's uh, doing something like Thomas Beckett in, in Modern Cathedral or, or or like Copenhagen. You know, you 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 have to find out things for yourself, and it's a process of learning new things. But it's also for me, the hope what I was saying earlier about the crucible, of taking it step by step, was that I love telling stories, and that's for me is what theatre. There's a big part of it is telling a story to an audience, and I love that. And if you tell that story through acting, and uh, you, you take the audience with you on on that whole journey for from the beginning to the end, without playing, just taking it in steps, taking it, finding the arc of your show, of your evening, of your show, of your character, and then you know bringing them to that place where they weren't two hours previous or three hours previously. It's a great sensation. It's a great feeling, and. Uh, like I'll read a story to anybody at the drop of a hat, even, and they don't take me up on it, which is. I've often said to people, "Would you like to read to you?" And they laugh, thinking I'm joking. They're, no, I'm actually serious. And then they feel that I'm being weird, and they move away. <laughs> so I just, <laughs> I do enjoy telling stories. I do enjoy it, and I, and, and and through theatre, it's it's wonderful. And to say, you know, some wonderful plays have been given to me to work on, and. I've been given that gift to, to, to of that play, and uh, you know, hopefully there's a full house there, and hopefully we all go and have a great time. You know, it's it's great. So now we, we must talk about Selena, yeah. um, and uh, your professional relationship. Mm. You worked with Selena on uh, t uh, Titus and a Tender Thing. First thing she was she was kind of a assistant director on on um, um, uh, the OKC um, Plan Stars okay. here. And that's when I first met her, and she was very quiet, and but you know, a lot of it, but rarely spoke. But uh, it was then she was doing Titus, and she gave me a call. She says, I have this idea of Titus and Dronicus. So, and then she showed me um, her, her, her plan for it, her dream for it, which was supposed to be in the actual uh, Daisy Market, which is uh, off Francis Street there. She wanted to do a kind of a site specific version, and it was like a big bomb site. And she was talking about jeeps and fires and, and people, all the, all the audience on different levels. And it was amazing. I thought, yeah, fantastic. Didn't work out. And we ended up doing the project. But she never uh, let the scale of it go. We had a, basically, it was a road going through the project. And we had a massive cast. Uh, so a lot of them were students from the Gaiety School. And um, uh, we did nine performances. Because had, had we done any more, the show would have been compromised. You know, we'd have to cast our cutting back. Couldn't we? Couldn't have afforded. To, couldn't afford to do any more than nine, which is great. You know, and I'd love to do Titus again and do a not touch a thing because that was just an exhilarating piece, and um, uh, so inventive and it was so even even in a theatre that size of the project it had a sense of spectacle and uh, I really really missed it when I ended. You know. So that we worked on that um, first off, and then we did um, a, a Beckett catastrophe, and uh, then we did Festin and uh, Lear, which again would be a lot of preparation. 
like Lear, we were talking about 12 months before we even went into rehearsals. You know, we were talking about ideas and what could we And then we did uh, last year, this time last year, we did a tender thing. Mm. And hopefully we'll be doing The Tempest for 2016 here. Fantastic. And hopefully she's been asked to, and we're talking about me doing Prospero, and I'd love to, you know. And that, I think it'll be, that'll be the, the next thing. I won't be doing any more theatre until until around then I'm not free till then anyway but so yeah so we keep we keep this you know coming together and we have a lot of meetings a lot be- way before we rehearse we, we talk about ideas we talk about just you know we exchange pieces of music paintings whatever we just get the the old head flowing you know and we did a lot of that on Lear an awful lot um, simple things like uh, when Lear went mad in the woods uh, we saw, saw a picture of Pan God, and so we said, why don't you make a head that instead of just putting his his flowers in his hair, that he makes uh, kind of a some sort of structure that looks like the pan horns, and so we went for that, and it seemed to it's a simple thing like that. It just gave it a little angle, a little edge that you don't normally see in those things. And you, so you have a shorthand with Selena. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. and and there's like there's, there's, there's rows and stuff like that, but it's it's um it's always never take it personally. It's always and you always end up with something hopefully good at the end of it but it's uh, yeah so it's um, it's one of those things that uh, um, I enjoy she's great great. I enjoy working with her you know yeah. I suppose staying on Lear um, it was obviously a difficult time for you to get through that production um, you mentioned uh, in interviews that you I suppose made tributes to your mother oh yes yeah I heard about you yeah yeah oh. I'm always whenever someone says the madness scene in a Shakespeare I always go I always cringe a little because it's never madness it's 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 somewhat brought them to that point like and I, we we talked about Lear um having dementia because then I could give the character some sort of arc so it, it started off small and then it, be, it began to grow and the first thing that's the first sign of Lear's dementia was pouring wine into an upended goblet and that's how we first realized that my mother had dementia that she poured tea into an upended cup and so we took things like that and it kind of gave me a good, I mean, it sounds like I was exploiting my own mother's illness, but it gave us a truth, if you like it. For me, it, I, I, everything we did had some sort of reference point to what she, where she was at, where there was sudden moments where uh, erratic behaviour, where she'd be violent and aggressive, which was completely out of her character, and then she'd be quite benign and, um, you know, maudlin and uh, whatever. So for me, it wasn't me playing madness, uh, as you know, the madness of Lear. It was playing um, a man who had an illness and it came from somewhere. And funny enough, like some of the more tricky elements, some of the more tricky speeches even uh, uh, in the play came, came a little bit easier to me, you know, than, than because it had that grounding. You know, I wasn't trying to impose an illness or a madness mm. on the character. It came from something that I was familiar with. And um, you know, I was uh, it was um, grateful again to Celine to allow me to explore that uh, without, you know, there was a certain uh, haste in, in rehearsals, but I still I was given time to bring in those elements, and I think it gave the thing a little, certainly it gave it a, a truth that uh, uh, that worked for me, you know. Because you're so young playing Lear, and would you would you approach it again? I would, yeah. I mean, Derek Jackie, we did it. He was very, very clever. He said he decided to do a quiet Lear. <laughs> I can understand why, but I think uh, yeah, you you do 
need to be, I, I think, to be uh, in your 70s and 80s and do a, uh, an energetic, a physical layer would be a mistake. I don't think he can. Did Jacoby do it that late? In, was he? He did. He would have been in the 70s anyway. Um, I think it's only about, was it about six years ago now? Maybe, maybe I think it was six or seven years ago, maybe. Okay. I could be wrong. But he was of an age um, uh, where he couldn't, you know, he couldn't be running around yeah. uh, at the Heath. I mean, you brought such a physicality to it. Well, yeah, that's because I'm, I'm 50. He was 53 at the time. And, good oh God, uh, two years. But I, so 53. And so I think, yeah, better that and bring a physicality and a theatricality to it uh, if you're going to do it that way. Um, of course, you can do it later on, but you, you, know, you might hurt yourself. <laughs> you might feel it the next day, you know. And blow wind and crack your cheeks might have a different meaning altogether as well at a certain <laughs> age. <so he's laughs> but there must be an, there must be an impact yes. after playing. Yeah, but <laughs> there must be an impact after playing Lear. This is yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was, and we used that front of the stage that mm. came up. I never knew that existed. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it was, so it was, uh, it was, it was. And you were holding those wolfhounds. Uh, those oh yeah. Wolfhounds, my God. Yeah, they they, they have a mind of their own. Yeah. You know. Um, they were the 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 plan was to to come in with those wolfhounds, uh, me you know them on the leash in front of me too. But they kept going in opposite directions. So I thought, <laughs> Selena, can we just have the bloody things? Can I just come in with Cordelia, please? <laughs> At least I can control her. Right? But uh, I don't mean that in a nasty way. But uh, but uh, that was so yeah. So they 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 kind of ran around the stage. But we did have bigger plans. But they just didn't yeah. cooperate. <laughs> they just didn't cooperate. But you, you took a break after Lear, did you? Uh, I, no, I went straight to London. Did you? Yeah, well, I was. I was. I got a call from Marianne Elliott, who directed Warhorse and um, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night, and um, she was doing a production of uh, Sweet Bird of Youth at the Old Vic with Kim Cattrall, and I thought, okay, why not? I was just run by the missus first, and that was fine. <laughs> so I was over there for about five months. And and it uh, looked like I'd take myself out of Dublin, but I hadn't. I was over there, and I was in a, it was an amazing production. I have to say, it was, uh, uh, Williams had written eleven different versions of it because he was never happy. But he, uh, he, um, but um, we eventually had a great dramaturg, and he eventually put together one terrific version of it. And I had a ball doing it. Boss Finley was the character, a very corrupt politician, um, and he was. Uh, I mean, it's it's an extraordinary play in the sense that it's rarely done. Or, for a good reason, I think it was when it came out. It would have been late fifties, maybe. But it's a play that deals with uh, abortion, castration, venereal disease. Uh, um, I mean, it just they weren't particularly savory subjects at the time. Drug addiction, it was all there, and I don't think people would. Uh, it was hailed as a, saw it as a, as an accessible, successful play, and say like, like like a streetcar uh, mm. was or, or um, uh, uh, cannot in roof. Say. So it, it was a it was a challenging play at the time, and it, was, it still had an edge to it when we did it. So then when I came back, uh, I worked with Selena again, playing Romeo and Juliet with Alwyn, uh, Alwyn Foy, El Pal, and um, we did a, a tender thing, which was uh, adapted by Ben Power from Romeo and Juliet, much to do with nothing, and uh, some of the sonnets as well, and that was a, I was really uh, thrilled to do that. that was such a moving piece. Uh, it was about. It was a bit like that French movie Amour, yes, yeah. an elderly couple, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Every word of it was Shakespeare, obviously. And uh, um, she falls ill. He looks after her, and then they have a suicide pact. And um, 
that was the play, but there was much more to it than that. It was far more moving. And it, it just underlined for me and a lot of people who came to see it, the whole fragility of life, of fragility of relationships, how much we take for granted and how much we shouldn't take for granted in, in terms of our relationships and stuff like that. And it was, um, it was, it was a, a very satisfying piece to do. Mm. And that I would do again, I could do again, because again, I mean, we weren't, you could play that into your 80s, you yeah. know. Um, it, was, it was just a beautiful piece compiled by Ben Power. Well, you talked about being in London with, um, with Sweet Bird of Youth. Um, had you um, ever any grow to, to move over there and, and, and settle a life over there? Uh, in a funny kind of way, I, I, I thought I was okay here because, you know, the work was more accessible. I thought if I went to London, I'd get lost. I'd, be, I'd, I'd, I'd sink. I know there's so many Irish actors over there I wouldn't get the part now. and the way I, I think I was right I wouldn't have gotten to play some of the great roles that I played here um, had I gone over there but well, having said that when I came back I missed there was a vibrancy and a, a, a positive energy and uh, which may have come out of sort of their arts being funded more or something or, or a sense of uh, an industry or a sense of uh, um, uh, a more vibrant force in society than we maybe look on theatre. The theatre is like almost like something that people will go to if, um, you know, if the missus wants to take me out, I have to go and see a play or something like that. There's an element of that. Other than that, there's a, there's a party faithful, if you like, an audience that you see all the time, but there, it's far more varied. Mm. And that energy was wonderful to watch. So when I came back, I missed it. I missed that energy. I missed the, the variety. I missed the amount of... Um, things available to go and see, to sort of the workshops, all that aspect of things that, that are, you know, you do have them here, but you know, you, in the course of a year, uh, you'll, you'll use them up, you know, there, there won't be as many things happening, put it that way. It's a bigger place, London, and but I miss the vibrancy, I have to say. So I could have, I, I died, you know, it's a, had I gone over in my 20s, I don't think I would have gotten the, been fortunate to play all those roles they played here and in the gates and the project and all that so so yeah I'm not no regrets and screen work wise you you mentioned certain projects come up you're at the moment you're still on Fair City I'm still on Fair City for two more weeks okay I'm the, the self-medicating locum doctor who uh, should have been struck off yeah. week one uh, so I'll be gone from there and um, I'm then moving back onto Vikings which I did last year playing Count Odo leader of the French troops which is not for pressure, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, so then we're going to and we're doing sixteen episodes and I'm doing twelve of those sixteen. So I'm looking forward That's to that seven months. Yeah, I'm really happy with that. Um, but I do miss theatre, and I do. And I was saying, you know, what I've often said is that you almost have to save up to do to act in plays. You know, if it, you know, it, it's it's. Well, I I've done such a stint of for years where, uh, you know, it was just not easy to, to survive with a family and all the rest of it because um, it's just underfunded and, and you know, people can't be paid and, and to on a, if, if they want to work on nothing else you just can't do that you just can't you know focus on theatre and nothing else you must take the jobs that pay and uh, so so I'm doing that for a while but I, I I'd, you know, I'm looking forward to all going well coming back here with the Tempest. Recharge the batteries and recharge the bank account. Oh God, now you're talking. <laughs> oh no, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Susan. Thank